It was the biggest church split in history, at least for the Western sector of the professing Christian church. We're talking about the Reformation. I want to ask the question, was that split worth it? Was it really worth it? So many ramifications, not only at that time, but in our own day, the Protestant, the Roman Catholic divide still is there. Was it just a fight over little things, trivial things, trivialities? Or were bigger, bigger, much bigger issues involved than most people realize today? I'm going to say, and I'm going to make the case that the split was worth it. It was necessary. It was the right thing. As we go to the scripture, I'd like us to open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, where the Apostle Paul writes this, and ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is theonoustos, God breathed, breathed out by God, proceeds from the mouth of God. And what we find in the scripture is scripture says of itself that it is the inspired word of God. Jesus affirmed the inspiration of scripture, even to dotting of the I and the crossing of the T in our English language. In Hebrew, he spoke of the Yod, the jot and the tittle, and not one jot or tittle of the law will fail to be fulfilled. He had the highest view of Scripture. Does anything else rise to that level? Does anything of the Pope, any declaration from Rome, any uh, cardinal, any bishop, any, any one of us, uh, a hundred theologians, a thousand theologians, even the cumulative authority of a thousand theologians I would say none of it rises to the level of Scripture. Only Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what our Bible declares. And the Bible says, let God be true and every, that's a whole lot of theologians, every man a liar. The Scripture is God's self-disclosure. Every word, verbal, uh, plenary, inspiration, the theologians refer to it, the actual words uh, in the original manuscripts are the very words of God, written by men, 100% of man, and yet 100% of God, just as Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. Back in the 16th century, 1517, October 31st, it's uh, kind of uh, an academic date just set on a calendar, but it was really the spark of the Reformation. There were many things leading up to that. I won't go into that at this moment. But on that day, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the church door at Wittenberg. 95 ideas he wanted to debate So much was happening near him. A man by the name of Johann Tetzel was around propagating uh, 
from Rome something called indulgences to the point where uh, full indulgences were being meted out for the best of all offerings. Uh, he had a catchphrase, when a coin in a coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And the idea was uh, your dead relatives, your, maybe your brother, your sister, your fathers, your, your mothers, your grandfathers, they're in this place of purging. Do you not hear them calling to you? And uh, of course, this was a colossal uh, a massive propaganda ploy to fund the uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. In fact, that's what it is built on. Uh, the, the paupers of Europe at that time gave heavily uh, to the funding of this and for their uh, great sacrifice of money, they were promised hundreds of years, thousands of years, in fact, full deliverance from perjury. Uh, the idea in the Roman Catholic system is that there is a treasury of merit. You may not have heard that phrase. Well, why not? Well, it's not a biblical idea, not a biblical concept, but there are so many uh, saints in the Roman Catholic Church who not only did enough to get to heaven themselves, but did more than enough. Uh, Mary and uh, perhaps Joseph, but certain saints, of course, it's the Pope who tells us who these people are, they've done enough, not only to gain salvation for themselves, but they've done more than enough. They have enough merits for themselves, but more than enough merits. And that over uh, uh, funding of merit is put into a treasury in heaven, whereby it's under lock and key. And the only person who has access to it is Peter. He has the keys. And uh, Peter being the succession of the Pope in the Roman Catholic view. Uh, Peter was the first Pope, and so the current Pope has the ability to, through uh, indulgences, grant uh, people time off purgatory by means of the merit that is excess in storage, if you can think of it, excess merit achieved uh, by, by Mary and, and the saints through, through the ages, to allow people the freedom from purgatory. And um, that was something that riled Luther to the max. I don't know if he was yet fully embracing the gospel. His own writings seem to indicate it was a later date that he understood uh, the full ramifications of the gospel. And those 95 theses, if you read them in English, they uh, affirm the fact that Martin Luther was very much a son of Rome. He wanted to have a debate on the issue. He was more than annoyed, aggrieved over what was taking place, and he wanted to debate these ideas. He wanted to do so theologically in the language of the theologian by uh, the means of he wrote those things, those 95 ideas, debate points in Latin, the language of the scholar. Uh, unbeknownst to him, apparently, we have no knowledge that he knew anything of it, uh, he had students who knew Latin, who translated that Latin into German, the language of the people. And because of the printing press having uh, been um, invented not that far uh, from that time, uh, certainly before that, it meant that uh, these 95 theses were printed in German and they went like wildfire through all of Germany to every village and hamlet and town 
And so Martin Luther became something of a superstar and it catapulted uh, these issues into the, the mainstream of the people, the media of the people. And this was then debated all through Germany. And it was the spark of the Reformation. And we could talk about all that took place there, but I want to get to the doctrinal issues. And over time, two big issues emerged. One is what we call the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Where did that arise? Well, it arises from Scripture and its own declaration about itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God. There's no reference in the Bible to any other uh, source that is of that kind of standard. Only Scripture is able to bind the conscience. And in fact, that's the phrase that Martin Luther used at the Diet of Worms. An imperial diet was not something to do with food. It was a summoning uh, by uh, cardinals and bishops and authorities to uh, come and uh, talk on an issue and uh, big, big league things would happen either way were regarding what would be the outcome. But at the Diet of Worms, Worms being a ta- town in Germany, we spell it in English W-O-R-M-S, we would say Worms, but in German it was Worms. And it's where we actually get the phrase opening up a can of worms, because that's what Luther did at this diet, because he was told to recant his writings, uh, many of which were abhorrent to the Roman Catholic authorities. And uh, Luther wanted to debate the issues even there at Worms, thought he would be given opportunity to do so. He was not. He was told, we just want one, one word from you. I recant. That's two words in English. But in Latin, it was just one word, uh, revoco. And they just wanted that to come out of his mouth and all would be well. That's not what Luther did. He asked for a day to think about it. He understood uh, the ramifications of what he would be saying. And he would probably be burnt to death um, for, for not coming under the authority of Rome. He would be not only classed as a heretic, but um, sent to the flames. And uh, he wanted another day. But he came back, was asked, all right, are these your writings? They had a number of his books on a table. And uh, he went through a speech. You can read it. It's well worth reading. But the main part of it was where he said in German, and now translated into English, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot, I will not recant. Then he said these words, My conscience is held captive by the word of God and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. It's been disputed whether the final words that are attributed to him at Worms were actually said by him, but certainly the concept is there. He then said, here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Here stehe ich, ich kann nichts anders. Gott helfe mir, the original German. And with those words, sola scriptura was out on the table. Luther was affirming, I understand what popes say. I understand what bishops say. But they've heard, they've contradicted each other on many occasions. Unless you can show me from scripture 
that my books are in error, I cannot recount, uh, I cannot recant what I've written. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And there it is. Scripture alone, sola scriptura was certainly evident there. I'm not sure that that was a phrase that was known at that time. It became evident over time uh, in the Reformation, Scripture alone. But he was not the first to suggest this. There had been others before that had uh, affirmed this fact. In fact, one of the things we learn from church history is that the Reformers were not trying to create a revolution. Revolution means away with everything and start again afresh. No, they wanted reformation. They wanted to see a change in the church. And that's why we refer to it as the Protestant Reformation rather than the Protestant Revolution. And they were wanting people and everyone in the church to come back to the teaching of Scripture. Once we understand that Scripture alone is the Word of God, the Bible alone is the Word of God, we then have to plumb the depths of Scripture to find out what it's teaching. And in the Middle Ages, in that dark age time, the light of God's Word was hidden from the people. Services were in Latin. Most had never heard Scripture read. No one knew it, not even Many of the, the priests would understand what Scripture says. They've never really had access to it. They'd had access, uh, the academics, to the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Scripture. But on many points, it was not only fuzzy, but taught uh, very contradictory things than the Gospel. Specifically, I'm referring to the issue of justification, justificare in Latin. And in Latin... That phrase meant to make righteous, whereas the Greek word is dikae sune, and it means to declare righteous. And there's all the difference in the world between those two ideas. And Rome held to the making righteous view, whereby God would only declare someone righteous who were inherently righteous. There's a theological term for this. It's analytical justification. And that means uh, simply this, that God would analyze a person's life and their soul. And under analysis, if he saw perfection, if he saw Christ in his fullness, in maturity, perfection in other words, he would on that basis of analysis declare them to be righteous. And you can understand now why after death, when people still have blemishes on the soul, they need under that concept to go to purgatory where they are purged. It may look like hell, it may smell like hell, it might feel like hell, but theologically it's not hell according to Rome, it's purgatory where you are being purged of the inward things that are still not in conformity to the perfection needed. And so, the, the purging, hear that word purging in the word purgatory, can go on for hundreds, thousands, even millions of years till one Tuesday afternoon at two in the afternoon, 2.14, God looks down and says, that's it, Bert, that's it, William, that's it, Mary, uh, I see perfection in your soul. Now, the others, you guys have to wait, but... I'm beaming you up. You can come to heaven right now because you are now 
inherently righteous and I declare you righteous on that basis. That is the Roman Catholic view of justification. And ladies and gentlemen, it's still the same today. There's been no change. In fact, the division that took place at the Reformation is even wider now than it was then. There have been declarations of the Pope that um, far exceed even what was pronounced then at the Council of Trent later on uh, regarding Mary and her assumption and many of the things regarding uh, Mary and that those things were not even talked about in a formal way at that time. So the divide is even greater now. But that's the Roman Catholic view, analytical justification, God declaring people righteous based on grace operating in the soul over time and a cooperation taking place whereby people are purged of the inward uh, tendency of sin and then God then declaring them righteous. Again, sola scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, the debate on which everything uh, hung was how authoritative is Scripture? And Rome would acknowledge the Bible is inspired, but also would say, and so is the declaration of the Pope. So is that which comes from the chair of Peter when the Pope sits in it and makes a declaration. He is infallible as infallible as scripture is. And so it's scripture and tradition in the Roman Catholic Church that has the authority. Now, when you think about it, that being the case, Rome tells you what scripture means by what it says. And it's really, rather than sola scriptura, in all practical ways, Rome embraces something, they would not admit to it, but this is the view from the outside. I believe it can hold up to debate. Many debates have taken place over it. They would view the reality as sola ecclesia. When the church speaks, God speaks. They would even say it's the church that has given us the word, the church that has given us the word of God. It's the church that told us which books are inspired. It's the, it's the church that has produced the word. I believe the exact opposite is true. It's the word of God that's produced the church. God makes Christians by means of the Holy Spirit superintending the word of God. And 1 Peter 1 tells us that you're born again of incorruptible seed by the word of God. That's his method. So big things are in play here. What is the Reformation view? By the way, when I hear the Reformed view or the Reformation view, what's in my mind at least is what's the biblical view? That's because the Reformation was a back to the Bible movement. The Reformation view of justification is very, very different. Rather than it being analytical, it is what we call synthetic. And that means something added. And rather than it being that God analyzes us and finds us righteous and then declares us righteous, the biblical view of justification is the sinner. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 as we're turning there. The sinner, without any change in terms of his actions and 
him cooperating to do anything, the moment a sinner is given faith as a gift and then, and then expresses that faith in Christ, the moment he believes, God declares that person, the sinner, right in his sight. That's what justification is. And that's what we find in the biblical text. Synthetic. Why? Why would we say synthetic? Because something is added. Something's added to the person. And it's the righteousness of Christ. Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness. In Latin, alien justitium. Alien righteousness. You think of what an alien is. Are we being invaded by aliens? We're talking about something, some person, something, some being from another world. And the, the understanding in terms of alien righteousness is that it's something outside of us. It's not something in us. It's something outside of us. And this righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Here's the basis for this. The Bible teaches three transfers. First of all, the transfer of Adam's sin and the guilt associated with that sin to all the human race. As in Adam, all die. Romans chapter 5, if you to uh, read from chapter 5, verse 12 onwards, it speaks of this. Uh, the human race is born spiritually, DOA, dead on arrival, because in Adam, we all sinned and are dead now spiritually. The transgression of Adam has affected us all. That's what the fall has done. We call this original sin, which is not our original sin or even um, someone else's original sin. But the fact is everyone is born with sin because of Adam. And that's the transfer. Adam's sin to the human race. We're all guilty before God in just being born. We're born of Adam. That's why we need salvation, every single one of us. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who belong to Christ are made alive spiritually. And there are two federal heads, Adam being the head of the human race, Christ being the head of the church and those who believe in him. How gracious is God to send a federal head for us. Now, Understanding this, justification is based on these three transfers. I spoke of one of them. The second is the sins of all those who would ever believe. God's people were put on Christ on the cross. He had lived uh, a sinless life. He was born of a virgin, fulfilled the law, perfectly perfect, the lamb without blemish. He went to the cross and there on the cross, our sins were laid on him. And Rome would affirm that. They would believe in this transfer, that our sins were laid on Christ. Well, how do we get that? Isaiah 53 speaks of it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verse 6. That's the heart of the gospel. But there on the cross, there was 
not only our sins transferred to Christ, but in Christ dying, being buried and rising again, at the cross, God is able to transfer the righteousness of Christ to the believer. And that's what we read in our Bibles. Philippians speaks of it. Second Corinthians speaks of it. Um, a righteousness not of my own through the law, Paul wrote in Philippians, but that which is through faith in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I was actually on the street not so long ago and a Roman Catholic came up to me and said, Martin Luther added the word alone in Romans 3. Well, he did actually, but it's not really a mistranslation of the text. When in the German Bible he was writing, he says we're justified by faith and then a line in German, alone. Um, really, though, he added the word alone. He's simply articulating what the text actually teaches. And it is the fact that we're justified by faith apart from works. In other words, by itself. That's what alone means. Do you know if you're alone, you're by yourself. So my answer to the Roman Catholic was, um, so what? That's what Romans 3 teaches Romans 3 28 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law that is justification by faith alone apart from works that's what it means and so this second principle of the reformation the formal being sola scriptura the material being sola fide that was where the whole debate ensued on what basis once we understand God is speaking, God is speaking in Scripture, and He's speaking there with all His authority. What does Scripture say about how we stand before God? And as we read certain books in our New Testament, Galatians being one, Ephesians being another, Romans being another, we could go on and on, Philippians being another, the book of Acts, I mean, where do you stop? John, all the way. Actually, I'd start with Genesis because right there in chapter 15, which is where Paul goes in Romans 4 when he explains justification by faith alone, exhibit A is Abraham. And the message is, I'm not saying anything new. Abraham wasn't justified by works. If he did, he'd have something to boast about before God. But what does the scripture say? I'm reading Romans 4 verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at that. Righteousness counted to him on the basis of faith. And then verse 4 and 5, the analogy is the employer and employee relationship. Something everybody can understand. You work for an employer as an employee. He says, work for me so much for the job or so much per hour. When he pays you after you've done the job, you don't say, oh, how merciful you are. No, there's actually a big problem if he doesn't come through and provide what he says he would pay you. In fact, because that is what you are due. When you work for $20 an hour or $15 an hour or $150 an hour, whatever the, the price of your expenditure of energy and work is, 
and there's an agreement, that's what you'd be paid. Once you've worked those hours, your employer owes you. We understand that concept. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, works as a librarian, works as a doctor, doesn't matter what the kind of work is that's involved, when someone is working, his wages are not counted as a gift, they're not counted as mercy, gift, grace, but as his due. He's owed that. We understand that. But here's the gospel, verse 5. And to the one who does not work. All right? He, he's, he's on his lounger. He's in his couch. He's not working at all. Get the picture. Someone's not working. He's not doing anything. But believes. Believes what? Faith has an object. Believes in him. Him being God. Believes in the God, him, who justifies, look at this next phrase, the ungodly. Whoa, that is amazing when you see it. In verse 4, in the original language, it reads this way when we translate it into English, to the working one. And then verse 5, it's the same phrase, to the working one, except the word not is inserted. And so it is in verse 5, and to the not working one. <laughs> it couldn't be more of a contrast. To the one who does not work, that's a very good translation. More literally, it would be, and to the not working one. That's not very good English, so it doesn't appear that way in our English Bibles, but get the concept. To the working one, verse 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the not working one, but the one believing in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. That's our desperate need before a holy God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of God. Our desperate need is righteousness. More than happiness, more than success, more than fulfillment righteousness. We need it more than oxygen. We need it more than our next breath. We could die. And if we die without righteousness, we go to a lost eternity. If you die with just worldly success, what's the use of that? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There is no more success than owning everything. And yet Jesus says, what's the, what's the use of that? Our need is righteousness. How do we get it? By not working, but believing in God who justifies the ungodly. No one in a cult can grasp this. They, they mess up the Trinity. They mess up the person of Christ. And you'll notice they always mess up the good news. And so when Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion, uh, translated his own Bible, what would we call it? It's not really a legitimate Bible. He never understood grace. But his translation talks about, in fact, that he does not justify the ungodly. He, he, he cannot grasp it. No, grace is grace. And as Romans eleven six points out, 
For it to be grace, there can be no component, no element of works in it, or else it's not grace at all. We're talking about grace being a gift, and that's what's in view in verse 4. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, he's not working, he's lounging around, he's sitting, not working, but he does this. He believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So we come as sinners without any work of God in terms of sanctification, becoming more righteous. We're in our ungodly state of sin. And we call upon the name of the Lord in faith, God giving us faith as a gift. That's another teaching altogether. The message of sola gratia, that's what it meant. That the fact that we even call upon the name of the Lord legitimately is because God has given us grace to do that. It's a gift. Repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift in Scripture. But that faith is the instrument that causes us to be saved because we are by faith justified. His faith is counted as righteousness. So exhibit A, when Paul said, what I'm teaching is not new. This is the way Abraham got in. He then says, exhibit B, that's David. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Notice that. That again is sola fide. I don't see the word faith alone there. It's staring at you if you only just understand the concept in place. It's like the word Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. I I met someone and he said, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I said, do you know the word Bible's not in the Bible? (laughs) It might be on your cover, um, but it's not in the original text. It's a word we use from the word Biblos and it means book. And it is the book. Um, Other things are books, but this is the book. No, the concept of the Trinity is certainly in Scripture, even if the word isn't. And the concept of justification by faith alone is all through Romans 3, all through Romans 4, and at the beginning of Romans 5 as well. And it's on this issue of salvation. How do we stand righteous before a holy God? And Romans 3.24, after verse 23, I'm I'm teaching you a lot here. Verse 24 comes after 23. (laughs) Here it is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What a Savior. Here's the big difference between Rome and the Protestant reformers. Based on Scripture, here it is. Rome says Christ and His sacrifice is necessary for you to be saved. We say, because Scripture says, it was not only necessary, it was sufficient. Jesus on the cross said it is finished. He didn't say, I've done my part, I now leave it up to you. He did it all. What a Savior. And so, as Paul is articulating justification by faith alone, He says, exhibit A is Abraham. This is not new. Exhibit B is David. He speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, imputes, transfers righteousness apart from works. There it is. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What are we talking about? Well, when someone sins, imagine God has a ledger. He says on May the 24th, on a particular year, as he's recording sins, he says you got up at 8 o'clock and by 8.01 you'd sin in your heart. You lusted after a woman. You, you uh, plotted to steal. You, you, you had very, very bad thoughts. You, you actually kicked the dog. You shouldn't have done that. I, I, I count all these things. And on that particular day, here's the ledger. I count that sin to you. You committed the sin. I count it to you. How many sins? If you thought about it for your lifetime, say, Someone commits one sin with the mind in a day, one sin with their hands, what they do, uh, one, things, uh, one sin with mind, with heart, with body, with action. Let's say there's three sins a day. Uh, we think, well, that's a pretty good person. There's a lot of other things and moments throughout the day. That's not, that's not that bad. But imagine that it's three sins a day, and there's 365 days in a year, what are we? We're way over a thousand sins per year, and someone lives to be 70 years old? We're talking even on three sins a day, over <laughs> 70,000 sins. And if you look in God's ledger, what you would expect to find is the listing of the 70,000 sins. You sin, it's counted against you. But, Look what we're reading. Blessed, verse 8, is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What's happening? It's another evidence of grace. Why? How can God do that? How can God do that? Here's the reason. Christ died for sinners. And on the cross, our sins were counted towards Christ. Rather than put in our ledger, they're put on his. And he died in the place of sinners who actually had sinned. And so say a man has committed 70,000 sins. The Bible says, 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. I'm not Pentecostal, but if you could see me now, I'm raising my hands. I'm telling you, this is awesome. That's the gospel. It should have been counted towards us. But the blessed man, the I want to ask you, are you the blessed man? Do you understand what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ? On the cross, he bore human sin, all the sin of all those who would ever believe. Hallelujah. I'm punching the air. You can't see it because it's audio. Awesome. This is the gospel. Now, Paul then goes on in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Why is he saying all this? Well, Abraham was the first Jew. David was king of Israel. Is it only Israel people that are coming into this wonderful uh, righteousness that is apart from works, uh, initiated by God by the means of grace and through faith in him? And um, We're talking grace alone, not grace plus human merit. We're talking about faith alone without human works. We're talking about Christ alone. Christ, not Christ plus the saints. Christ plus our activity. Christ alone. We've got the, all of the solas here. 
based on scripture alone. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why all the glory goes to God alone. How then was all of this taking place? Is this blessing only for the Jews, the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's another evidence of sola fide. Look at the text. We say that faith was counted to Abraham. On the basis of faith, Abraham got righteousness. Hmm. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's the doctrine right there. And then it's asking the time question. All right. If we go back to Genesis, we're not going to turn there. But if you can think, at what point in the lifespan of Abraham was Abraham declared righteous in the sight of God? Well, we know it's Genesis 15. That's before Genesis 22, right? Chapter 22, he offered up Isaac and God intervened. Uh, and there was not the slaying of his son, but he was prepared to do that. What, a, what an act of faith that was. What a work that was. He did works after he was justified. But when we actually ask the question, when was he justified? It wasn't chapter 22. In the eyes of men, it was. We could see, man, that guy really believes. Whoa, that is amazing faith right there. He believed that if he slayed his son, he'd watch God raise him from the dead because he was the son of promise. The book of Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews chapter 11. It, it, it's an amazing faith he had. But in Genesis 15, that's way before Genesis 22. And it's Genesis 15 where he was justified. Genesis 15 verse 6. So look what verse 10 says. It asks the time question. How then was it counted to him? How then was what counted to him? Righteousness through faith. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, what's the point of that? Well, God commanded him to believe and God commanded him to be circumcised. But which came first? That's the question being asked. Hmm. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And Paul answers the question. It was not after but before he was circumcised. What's the point here? Before Abraham had done anything, before Abraham had cooperated, before Abraham had done anything to prove his faith, the moment he had genuine faith in what God had said, God counted it to him as righteousness and circumcision and acts of obedience would come later. That's what the Bible teaches. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In that condition of uncircumcision, having not done anything but simply had believed the promises of God, God declared him just righteous in the sight of God. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's Gentile people. So that righteousness, look at this, would be counted to them as well. That's imputation. And to make him the father of the circumcised. That's the Jews who are not merely circumcised, go through the outward act of obedience, 
but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is a wonderful, amazing passage that teaches justification by faith apart from works. Faith alone. We just skip now to chapter 5, verse 1, and therefore, on the basis of all that's come before, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church, could, they could cry faith. They could cry grace, Christ, the Scripture, even the glory of God. And I would say anyone embracing a false gospel can do that. But the cry of the reformers based on scripture was this, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. With scripture alone as the sure foundation, I stand, we stand in a long line of fellow reformers in affirming that justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone, because of Christ alone alone, to the glory of God alone. This is slightly exciting, isn't it? No, it's massively exciting. Before he had done anything, before there were any works, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't have righteousness inhering in him, operating in him. It wasn't Grace was infused into the soul. Rome teaches that grace is infused into the soul of someone at baptism and it makes them inherently righteous and therefore God can judge them to be righteous as they continue to cooperate and allow grace to have its effect. And they would say we're saved by grace, but do you notice it's a cooperation? It's synergism. It's sin, more than one, erg, a unit of work. It's not monogism, God doing this, God initiating, God granting grace and giving faith so that then we believe because faith is that gift of God. We're saved by grace, Ephesians 2 verse 8. Well, it doesn't say the word alone there either. It says, for by grace you are saved through, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Yeah, and read on. It says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what is inherent in the phrase, faith alone. Faith apart from works. Faith by itself. Faith alone. If you're alone, you're by yourself. If you're alone, (laughs) you are by yourself. And faith by itself justifies. And that's how we're saved. We're justified when God imputes, counts, transfers someone else's righteousness to our account, namely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The enemy of our soul or even our own conscience says, we're sinners. The devil says, you're a sinner. How can you stand before God? And we say, I can think of nothing, no reason at all, except the Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, was buried, raised from the dead, and is in the place of all authority in this universe. And he's the one who says, he that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And because I put my faith in him, Christ is my righteousness. My boast is Jesus Christ. My boast is the cross of Christ. My boast is the resurrection of Christ. God will not throw me away and cast me aside because I'm in Christ. I believe in him. He is my justification. He is my savior. He is my Lord. R.C. Sproul writes this, if any statement summarizes and captures the essence of the Reformation view, that is of justification, it is Luther's famous Latin formula. Are you ready? Simul justus et peccator. He goes on, simul is the word from which we get the English simultaneous. It means at the same time. Justus is the Latin word for just or righteous. Et spelled E-T, simply means and. Peccator means sinner. So this is the formula. At the same time, just and sinner. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, just and sinner. Sproul writes, Luther was saying that in our justification, we're at the same time righteous and sinful. Now, if we'd said we are just and sinful at the same time and in the same relationship, that would have been a contradiction in terms. But that is not what he was saying. He was saying that in one sense we are just, in another sense we are sinners. In and of ourselves, under God's scrutiny, we still have sin. But by God's imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our accounts, we we are considered just Sproul goes on, this is the very heart of the gospel. In order to get into heaven, will I be judged by my righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ? If I have to trust in my righteousness to get to heaven, I must completely and utterly despair of any possibility of ever being redeemed. But when we see that the righteousness that is ours by faith is the perfect righteousness of Christ, we see how glorious is the good news of the gospel. The good news is simply this. I can be reconciled to God. I can be justified, not on the basis of what I do, but on the basis of what has been accomplished for me by Christ. Protestantism, he goes on, really teaches a double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sproul. You've summarized it well. I would say this. It was worth dividing the church over this. Luther said, justification by faith alone, sola fide, is the article upon which the church stands or fall. Literally, the standing or the falling church. And it's true for churches. It's true for all of us. It's the article on which we all stand or fall. The Roman Catholic reaction to the Reformation view was to call this doctrine of the Reformers a legal fiction, that it would undermine God's integrity. They would ask, how can God, this perfectly holy God, this righteous God, declare someone, especially a sinner, to be just if he is not in fact inherently just? That's a legal fiction. It's a fictional declaration. God's lying and God would never lie. What's the response to that? The response was to say that God declares people just not because he's making something up that's not real. 
but that he imputes the real righteousness of Christ to them. Our sin was really placed on Christ and he suffered in our place. And his righteousness is really transferred to all who believe. And this justification is a law court term. We go to court. We have in the courtroom the devil who outlines all our sins and says, God, you must condemn this one to hell for he has sinned against you. The Lord Jesus Christ then steps up as our attorney and he says, your, your, your holy father, my holy father, you remember at the cross, I bore this man's sin and I imputed, you imputed to him my righteousness so that he stands in the righteousness of myself, the Lord Jesus Christ. God the judge says, that's right, my son, you did. You lived the perfect life for him. You died an atoning death for him. You were buried for him. You were raised for him. You, were, you ascended to, to my throne for him. And he now sits with you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a real righteousness, folks, because our sins were really laid on him and real righteousness, the life of Jesus, is credited to our account. And therefore, God declares us just and remains just in doing so. That's what Romans 3.26 says, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. R.C. Sproul writes this, There is nothing fictional about Christ's righteousness and there is nothing fictional about God's gracious imputation of that righteousness. In the last 20 years, there's been a real attack in the professing church, the so-called evangelical church, regarding the idea of imputation. Sproul said it this way, and I agree, Without imputation, you don't have, you gut completely the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And without justification by faith alone, there is no gospel. I'm an imputationist. What are you? An imputationist. My sins were transferred to Christ and his righteousness transferred to me. And I stand in the finished work of the perfect Savior Greg Francis once said this, he's now with the Lord, friend of mine. God demands 100% absolute perfect obedience. And if you can't do that, you better find someone who can do it for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you heard this good news? The Reformation was the biggest split in church history, at least in the Western sector. There was the East-West divide, and that's another story for another time. But this was a church split worth having because the Reformers took with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much is that worth, ladies and gentlemen? It's worth more than all the money in this world, all the gold, all the treasure. In today's climate, we say all the cryptocurrency, whatever you can think of. Eternity matters 
And for eternity, we will stand in the presence of God, those who believe in Jesus, because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, and that's it. He did it all. And the worship of heaven resounds. You are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy because you redeemed a people for God out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Rise up, people of God. This Reformation continues. There's never a time when it's totally over. The reformers came up with the phrase semper reformanda. It means always reforming. Not for reforming's sake, but they went on to say always reforming according to the word of God. Come under the word. Sola Scripture says, Sola Scriptura says, only scripture is God breathed. Everything else is less than that. And sola fide, the material principle of the Reformation is the very heart of the gospel. We're justified by faith, align, alone, apart from works. These are hills to die on. These are issues that merit a church split. And I pray that we, the people of God, would understand this wonderful gospel and stand for it. Uh, I have some folks back in England that think uh, the refer- they've, they've told me to my face and online, you know, you, you, you keep talking about the Reformation. God is not stuck there. No, but the Holy Spirit hasn't moved on from his word. And anytime we go astray from his word, we actually grieve the Holy Spirit. More than that, we slander him. We speak but we should speak in line with Scripture. And Scripture is worth everything in this world. Not only for the fact that so many people have died to get it in our hands, so much blood has been shed, but because this is actually God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. And like Luther, all of us should be able to say, unless you can show me from Scripture, I'm not moving from this. I'm sorry. One man talked to me and said, uh, I, I had a little picture as I was praying for you, John, of Jesus standing outside the door of your church with a clipboard asking people doctrine questions. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I thought for a moment. And I say, may I respond? He said, yes. I said, may I respond with one word? He said, yes. I said, Galatians. That's all I need to say. That is a book inspired by the Holy Spirit, where Jesus is saying, you mess with the gospel, you mess with justification by faith alone, you're not a brother. That's Jesus standing with a clipboard. There are things that are less than the gospel. Let's talk about those things. But I will not deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will not. That was the last time the gentleman spoke to me. But I tell you, this is more important than relationships. This is more important than family. As much as we love people and we love our family, let God be true. God has spoken in his word and we are justified by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. May we be true to it and reform us in our own day, standing for the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.